I like to label my message this morning. Return to the Lord and serve him only. For those that may not know, my first year of college, I was in New York. And it was an interesting time uh, being in New York. Met so many different people. And one woman that I, I, I met, um, she grew up in a Christian household. Um, she grew up not only in a Christian household, but she grew up in time, uh, places where she would be around all Christian people, going to Christian schools, going to gr- Christian um, vacation Bible schools. She spent most of her time around followers of Jesus. Interestingly enough, her dad was actually a pastor. And there's something about those PKs, huh? Those pastor kids, right? But she was a PK, and she was a a cool girl, but something interestingly happened when she got to college. And she started to hang around certain people, maybe not the best of people, and they started to influence her in so many different ways, ways that would not make her dad, her family, her church family proud at all. Now, keep in mind, I didn't grow up in a church at all, and I was seeing this girl, and even I said, man, you're doing some stuff that you should not be doing. She was going down a path of destruction. She was ensnared with the lifestyle of drug use, of addictions, and an entertainment business that is known to be cruel to women. This is the lifestyle that she was involved in. You know, sometimes when you are far off from God, you need to be drawn back to him. Sometimes you need people that's going to call you out and bring you back. I share that story with you because in our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel is calling God's people back to follow God, despite them being caught up and ensnared with things they shouldn't have been involved with. So to set the context for us so that you can understand where we are landing this morning, here's a quick synopsis of chapter 7. And we understand that the Ark of the Covenant is lodged in this place for about 20 years, and Israel, the people of God, laments. They cry out to God. The people of Israel, they were following God. They were following Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal, is the covenant, is the relational name of God. They were following him, but then they got preoccupied. They got preoccupied by following after other, what the Bible calls idols or or, or so-called gods. So they went astray. Now, Samuel occupies a fascinating role because he functions as a representative for God's people. He's presented as what we would call an ideal judge with all types of authority that is combined and that he's entrusted with. This authority contains military prowess. It contains judicial instruction And it also contains priestly functions that are meant to lead the people of God in obedience. Not to mention he's a prophet. 
which means he speaks on behalf of God to God's people for wisdom, for instruction, and also for direction. God's people were rebellious. Samuel has to give a word to them to exhort them to return back to the Lord. He says that they should do so with a, with a whole heart, a, a, a full heart of love and compassion. It's fascinating because Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says that the heart flows, out of the heart flows the springs of life. The heart is what the Bible would call uh, basically your true self. The centerpiece of who you truly are before God. Samuel says that they need to come back to God with a whole heart. A whole heart for Yahweh and to put away foreign gods. They are called to direct their hearts to God. And if this happens, God will deliver them from their enemies, the Philistines, the infamous Philistines. So the story continues, and they put aside their idols. They prayed. They drew out water. They fasted, and they confessed to the Lord that they had done wrong. As this is happening, the Philistines show up looking to demolish the Israelites. They are afraid, and they are scared because the Philistines had a bit of a reputation. Samuel cries out to the Lord on their behalf. He offers a lamb to sacrifice, and the text says that the Philistines drew near But Yahweh thundered a mighty sound and threw God's enemies into confusion. And the story ends by God rescuing the people. And there was peace. There was peace in the end. That's basically what happens in chapter 7. So that's it. That's over. Sermon over. We can go home now. But when we really look at it more deeply... And that is basically, that is what happens. But there's so much more that I think that we can pull away that will hopefully give us some encouragement. But also, there's some implications from this story that we can take away. Of course, there's a a battle that goes on. But I believe the story is more about how God's people return back to him. And if we're going to do that, Roosevelt, because there are people here this morning, if I can just say it bluntly, you need to return back to the Lord. You have gone astray. You have done things that you're not supposed to do. You have done a lot. And you should come back home. Listen, some of you have gone astray way before COVID even happened. So I don't want to put it on COVID and say, oh, well, that's the reason why we have gone away. No, 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 no. You were drifting away way before that. And some of you probably have also drifted more with COVID. And whatever reason you have, whether it's a legitimate reason or not, I want to encourage you this morning to return back to the Lord. How do we do this? 
How does God people do this? Well, we see it starts with a heart change. Verses 2 and 4, we see that it starts, it begins with the change of heart. Verse 3 says, And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you, and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and serve him only, serve Yahweh only. It starts with a, a heart change, and this is something that is miraculously done by the Spirit of God. You got to understand, Roosevelt, that the people of Israel were supposed to be the people that had exclusive worship for God. That's what they were supposed to do. But they're in a context, specifically in the ancient Near East, where there are a multitude of so-called fake idols and fake gods. So in some ways, they're being like the nations around them. They're being like the Philistines because what's interesting is these were the gods of the Philistines, the Baals and the Asheroth. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one, and we should love God, we should serve God only. This is the difference between uh, having, believing in multitude of gods versus believing in the one true God. And Israel was supposed to reflect that, but they're not. They've been caught up. They've been ensnared. They've been, they've been co-opted into believing and worshiping other idols, and other gods. This is why Samuel has to tell them to put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth. And in verse 4, specifically names Baal. Now, I think this is interesting because I think it's a way for Samuel to exhort the people to get rid of all of the so-called gods. And it's interesting because Baal is the god of fertility, and not only the god of fertility, but the god of storms. And he has a masculine aspect to him. And then you have the Asheroth, which is the god of fertility, and war. And she has a feminine aspect to her. So essentially, Samuel is saying, male or female deities, get rid of them all. And when we continue the story, you'll see that in the end, the Lord thundered a mighty sound and crushed the Philistines. I think that's fascinating because I think that the author is trying to communicate if Baal is the god of storms, <laughs> well, Yahweh is bigger and badder and is able to crush and able to thunder on this false god. I think this is beautiful and I think this is important. Now, I want to say something and share with you all that, you're, that you should know from your pastor. When I got saved, when I became a Christian, um, I had bad theology. Specifically, bad theology around music. So when I became a Christian, I took all my music, all my hip-hop, because I love hip-hop, and I know most of you, you know, you don't have CDs right now, because that was ancient, but back then we had CDs. And with these CDs, I took all of these different uh, musical genres, all the hip-hop, and I put it all into this, this box, and I got rid of it all. 
Because I thought that you can only sing songs that had Jesus in it. That was the bad theology that I had. I don't believe that no more because you can listen to all the different types of music. Amen, somebody. You can listen to all types of music um, that reflects, that reflects a, a biblical or Christian worldview. It doesn't have to say Jesus in it in order for it to be okay. So what I'm saying is the same way that I got rid of all my CDs, Samuel is telling the people of God to get rid of all these so-called idols. Notice that returning to the Lord means that there is a putting down and a picking up. There's an emptying out and there's a replacing with. There's casting aside of sinfulness and redirecting our hearts back to the Lord. When we stop following the Lord, in one sense, I want to say it's really just misdirected passions. It's misguided desires. It's misdirected longings that we have, and they're just put into the wrong place. James tells us this in the New Testament. So these desires that we have, these longings that we have, in some ways, they're good. They're just misplaced in the wrong direction. And we need to find a way to get back to the center. The phrase that Samuel uses to direct your heart to Yahweh, this word for direct in the original language, it has this idea to, to, to establish. There's a, there's a firmness and a recommitment to God. So, instead of being confused, instead of being, you know, kind of like, ah, wishy-washy, right? Essentially, what Samuel is saying, that we need to actually commit, in some ways recommit, back to the Lord. Now, some of us have commitment issues, I know. On your Facebook status, it says complicated. But Samuel wants us to commit our relationship back to the Lord. So you may ask the question, how do we recommit to the Lord? Well, um, I'm glad you asked. It, asked. it starts by confessing our weaknesses. We see this in verses 5 and 6. Samuel tells them to gather at a place called Mizpah, which is significant because this place means a place of watching. And this implies that there's a lookout spot with a high vantage point so that you can see the people, see the intruders coming and be able to do something before they get you. This place played a pivotal role within the book of, uh, of, uh, of Judges, so it's fascinating that this is the particular place that the people of God go to. Notice that they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And not only they poured it out before the Lord, but they also, they prayed. And they fasted. Fasted is the idea of abstaining from something with a spiritual purpose. Let's say you have some big decision that you're trying to make and you want guidance from the Lord. Some people will fast. They'll give up food for a particular time and pray and fast so that God can give them direction. This is what they do. They fast and there it is. 
they confess their sin. They confess their weaknesses, weakness before a holy and righteous God. If you read what it says in verse 6, it literally says, we have sinned against Yahweh. Returning to the Lord starts when we understand that there is an acknowledgement of the misdirected passions, the misplaced desires that we have in our hearts. You have to confess with your mouth and from a genuine heart posture. Now notice here that the people of God are confessing as a people. They're confessing as a nation. In other words, this wasn't an individual confession. It was a communal confession. It was a corporate repentance. It was a national acknowledgement of their wrongdoing. There weren't people pointing the finger like, hey, guys, just so you know, I didn't commit that particular thing. Oh, I wasn't born before then, so that doesn't apply to me. No, there is a corporate repentance, a corporate reflection that the people of God are doing. It's fascinating because if you read your Bibles, this is common. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 4 through 19, um, you don't have to turn there or anything, but it has Daniel's prayer. And Daniel's prayer is interesting because over six times, Daniel is praying to the Lord on behalf of the people. And six times he says, we have sinned. He doesn't say I, he says we. We have sinned and done wrong and act wickedly. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you. We have sinned. We have sinned. We, we, we. So in the Bible, there is a category to have of a communal, a corporate repentance, even though, like in the case of Daniel, he's confessing and repenting on behalf of, the ancestors, of his ancestors. <laughs> he wasn't even born when these things were happening, but he still is leading the people of God in repentance, corporately. As we think about returning back to the Lord, what are ways for us to confess our sins as the people of God? What are ways that Roosevelt, Yes, I said Roosevelt, because this is the local church that we are part of. What are ways that we can corporately repent, corporately confess to our God? Even if you didn't individually do the sin. Newsflash. In the world, in the culture, Christians have a bad name. I don't know if you know that or not. The idea of saying that you're a Christian or saying that you are a follower of Jesus or, pa- or, or a pastor is actually not like a good thing. People look at us very skeptical because of the wrongdoing 
that the people of God have done. Amen? What are some ways that, whether Roosevelt Roosevelt did it or just corporately, the people of God across the world have done things, what are ways that we can repent? Well, here's a couple. By the way, this is not an exhaustive list. There are so many more ways that we can lead in repentance and corporate confession. But here's just a couple. Spiritual abuse in the church. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you say, whoa, whoa, this didn't happen here at Roosevelt. Before you say that, understand in front of a watching world, when they see a church on the news and have an articles written about a pastor with spiritual abuse, they lump us all into one pot. And we can debate whether those people are actually Christian or not. That's a whole other conversation. The point is, they reflect and represent God's people for good or for bad. What another way that we can maybe confess? Financial mismanagement in the church. So there's a thing called the prosperity gospel out there. Some of you probably have heard it. Again, they represent Christianity, whether we like it or not. And they have done great harm to people that give their hard-earned resources and finances to the church. So much so that for some of you that's here, it's hard for you to even give to a church because of the pain and the hurt that you've experienced with financial mismanagement in the church. Let me keep going. Racism. Prejudice. Or what James 2 says, partiality in the church. Before you say, hold on, I'm not racist, though. Understand that there are people that name the name of Christianity in the past that own slaves. How do we make sense of that? And it's not just sweeping it under the rug as though it doesn't matter. Let me keep going. Putting politics over Jesus in the church. Can't say amen, ought to say ouch. There's so much to be said about that. I can keep going, but to believe in God means that we acknowledge our sin, yes, individually, but also corporately. It's not an either or, it's a both and. If you're going to be biblically rooted in followers of Jesus, you can't just take the parts of the Bible that you like. You need to take the whole counsel of God. And this challenges us. And if I'm honest, it challenges me. But we have to have the full counsel, comprehensive gospel of God. You got to understand, Roosevelt, that repentance leads to deliverance. In our story, repentance leads to deliverance. I want to say that you can commit your life to God right now. You can believe in Jesus. You can trust in him. And 
through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You can do that. But after you do that, I'm going to continue on in our passage here, is you have to continue to rely on the Lord. You have to continue to rely on the Lord. This is verses 7 and 8. We see that the Philistines hear about where God's people are at. Remember that Mizpah, remember, it has this connotation of meaning that there is a high vantage point that you can look down so the people of God can see this happening. They're there to try to crush the Israelites. And again, the Philistines, they were an aggressive and hostile people. They were all too familiar with going to war with various people groups. They also were very superstitious. They even brought images of their so-called gods to battle because they believed that after they would uh, win the battle that that particular god helped them win. So when the Israelites hear this, the text says that they are afraid. They are scared. But I want you to look at what they say to Samuel. They say, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh, God, for us, that we, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. Remember, they was on the Mizpah. They fasted, they prayed, they confessed. Philistines are coming. Now they're They want Samuel to cry out to God on their behalf. And what is it? It's an acknowledgement that God will save them. They are simply relying on the Lord and what Samuel said that he would do if they return back. Remember in verse 4. So they're calling on the promises of God and saying, hey, Samuel, don't cease to cry out. They're coming. We need God's help. They are trusting and believing what, is God, what God is going to do because they confess their sins before him. I want to encourage you this morning, wherever state you may be, but if you are in a stage where you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, if you want to recommit your life to, to, to God, I want to encourage you to do that because he is worthy of your praise. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your faith. And if you trust and believe in him, repentance leads to deliverance. As we are constantly reminded of this truth, it's important that we continue to rely on the Lord for our deliverance. Here in this text, Samuel is kind of functioning like a mediator of some sort. He's mediating on the behalf of the people. But today, I want you to know that you can cry out to God on yourself, for yourself. You don't need a mediator. You don't need me to do that for you. I'll gladly do that for you. But you can go to God yourself. You can cry out to him yourself. You don't need a priest. You don't need a mediator as long as you have Christ Jesus. Isn't it beautiful that we don't need anyone to come to God on our behalf because you can cry out to God yourself? Perhaps maybe that's where you're at this morning, where you need to cry out to the Lord. You need to not only confess your weakness, but you need to recenter your life. And what a hope that we have in Christ Jesus that we can bank our trust and faith on this hope, on this cornerstone, because he 
is who he's saying he is. The question is, do you ultimately believe him? And not only believe him, but do you trust him and trust him enough that you would follow him? Verses 9 through 14 is proof, is evidence that God will deliver his people, but he's only going to do this only when they come back to him. Only when they return back, because repentance leads to deliverance. Verses 9 through 14, we see God fulfills what he says, that he delivers his people. As the Philistines drew near, Samuel was sacrificing to God, but Yahweh with a mighty sound thundered. And this threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. If you don't know this, God has a history of fighting for his people. When you think about Exodus chapter 14, when they were in bondage, when they were in slavery in in Egypt, verses 24 and 25 says that God threw the Egyptian army into confusion. Some translation says panic. But God is in the business, and God has a history of throwing the enemies of God into confusion in such a way that they are defeated with the Egyptian army, and now we see here with the Philistines. God is consistent. God is consistent even when we're not. And the encouragement and the hope is for us, for us to be consistent. And to remember what God has done. To remember what God uh, has done, it was interesting because Samuel, he erected this Ebenezer stone. And the Ebenezer stone means Yahweh has helped us. This stone was 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 a monument to remember the salvation of the Lord. We can say that it's it's symbolic. It represents something to celebrate. In America, we have different monuments and different stones as well. And they're meant to represent something that we as Americans deem to be important or essential in remembering for American life and and history. So when you read this and hear this, this idea of this Ebenezer stone, I don't want you to think like, oh, that's so weird, that's so ancient. Who does that? We do it here in America. One of the most memorable structures in our country was completed in two phases of construction, one private in 1848 through 1854, and one public in 1876 to 1884. The start of this design was originated by a man named Robert Mills, an architect from Charleston, South Carolina. This monument that I'm talking about is the third tallest monument in America, standing at about 555 feet. It stands in Washington, D.C., and it was created to remember, it was created to honor the first president of America, George Washington. I've been to that monument, and it's an amazing tall structure. When you're there, you look up, you'll realize and see how small you actually are. But it was created to commemorate this man for his life and his legacy. 
So again, we do this here in America. On the contrast, when we think about the Ebenezer Stone, it is remembering God's saving work for the people of God. It marked a new beginning, a new start, a refreshed way of living for the Israelites because of how God showed up to help them when they were on the brink of death. Listen, if we can originate monuments for sinful men like George Washington, and granted, I know he may have done some great things and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, he still was a man that had his issues just like everyone else, then how much more for the sinless God of the universe? The stones, the monuments, the one that he delivered his people from sin, death, and the enemy. And when God delivered them, the story says it was resolved. I want to say for you, There are things that you are battling in your life, things that you struggle with, addictions. And I'm here to say that God is in the business of saving you and helping you in whatever that is. And when he overcomes that, maybe you should have your own stone, (laughs) your own stone of remembrance, whatever that may be, to remind you of how God saved you from that thing. I think this is a way that we can be able to remember and reflect on God because as I come to a close, I want to encourage us to return back, to recenter our lives, to come back home where you belong. Understanding that once you turn from your sin, turn back to God, God is in the business of delivering you by placing your faith and trust in the risen Christ for salvation. And the church said, amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to you in faith, come to you boldly, come to you knowing that you are indeed a helper. You're indeed a person that helps that delivers, that rescues, that saves. And many of us right now are in different spaces in life, and we need your help. We need your deliverance. We need your rescuing. Again, maybe it's not us personally, but maybe it's somebody we know. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's even a spouse that needs to be brought back to the Lord. So we ask for the miraculous. We ask for the impossible, knowing that you are a God that can do the impossible. You can do what we as humans sometimes think that is not possible at all. But anything is possible with God. So we ask, Lord, that you would be able to give us soft hearts, give us hearts that are warm and receptive to what you have for us in Christ Jesus, as we return back to you and serve you exclusively, serve you only, because you are the God that is worthy of our worship. All these things we ask and we pray in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Amen.